Welcome to the Breaking Boundaries podcast. I'm Annalise Riles, Executive Director of Northwestern University's Roberta Buffett Institute for Global Affairs. The Northwestern Buffett Institute is dedicated to breaking through traditional silos of expertise, geography, culture, and language to surface novel solutions to pressing global challenges. The World Wildlife Fund has been one of the leading conservation organizations for over 60 years. And recently, it has launched an innovative new suite of programs with a somewhat unlikely target, infrastructure. The WWF has created an infrastructure and nature coalition to showcase how we can build new and necessary infrastructure while restoring biodiversity, fostering resilience, and creating a just and carbon neutral future. Here at Northwestern University, the Institute for Sustainability and Energy, known as ISIN, is a member of this coalition. And here with details on this really exciting initiative is Kate Newman, Vice President for Sustainable Infrastructure and Public Sector Initiatives at the World Wildlife Fund. So excited to have you, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot. So let's start with your own background. What led you, Kate, to devote your life to safeguarding the environment? I would say my environmental science teacher when I was uh, in high school, to be fair. He introduced me to nature. My parents loved the state park, but we didn't go beyond the state park. And we had outing club events and he taught us environmental science, of course, but really got me hooked. And then I uh, tried to go to school for that. Turns out I wasn't so great at math, couldn't do environmental science, switched to anthropology, went overseas, became a Peace Corps volunteer in the most biodiverse place in Africa, realized that conservation wasn't really about math and science only. It was about how people relate to the environment. Turns out I had all the ingredients for a people relationship with nature and that that funny career I started to develop and came back and very fortunately got a job at World Wildlife Fund pretty early on in my career. I've been there 31 years now. Really excited to talk with you because I am also an anthropologist. Our anthropology students would absolutely love to do what you do. All right, so let's talk about infrastructure. So infrastructure is probably not the first word that comes to mind when most people think about biodiversity and climate change. And yet I recently heard an estimate that climate change itself will require public and private investments in infrastructure of $90 trillion between now and 2030. That's equal in value to all of the infrastructure we actually have on the planet right now. As we literally rebuild the whole world in response to climate change, getting it right is surely key to sustainability. So tell us what is sustainable infrastructure? Why is this a priority for the World Wildlife Fund? And what are you doing about it? Well, WWF, as we've been saying, is a conservation organization. And that means we focus on helping maintain the integrity of natural systems on Earth. And we focus on forests, freshwater, oceans, wildlife. But we also look at how the drivers of change are affecting all of that biodiversity. And one way to look at drivers of change are 
how they affect the earth. And the three most impactful categories, let's say, of drivers of change of resource use, whether on land or at sea, are food production by humans, urbanization, and infrastructure. These are all going to make massive changes on the space around us. And our organization has took on agriculture a while back. We've been working on urbanization over time. We've been working on freshwater infrastructure like dams, hydropower dams, and so on, and the impacts they have on rivers and streams. But we hadn't yet really pulled that all together and worked on infrastructure across the board and other kinds of infrastructure affecting terrestrial ecosystems. So that's now a shift that we're making to address that third big challenge to global sustainability. And so by sustainability, we mean enabling natural systems to function and continue to provide services both to the planet, the intrinsic value of nature, but services to human beings and then the integrity of the ecosystems they set themselves. And that's the sort of biodiversity side of things. We're also looking at climate change in terms of mitigating greenhouse gas emissions so that we reduce climate change over time. And then the third one is building resilience to climate change, which is something we've gradually come to realize is essential. And that's resilience not only to climate change for, on behalf of people and our survival on Earth, but also to the ecosystems themselves. We're probably going to have to be managing that adaptation or helping nature adapt more and more over time, as we're seeing with the fires around us and the other calamities that we're experiencing more frequently. Do you find a receptive audience among policymakers around the world to the idea of sustainable infrastructure? Is this What are some of the pressure points in this work? Infrastructure is I'm finding absolutely fascinating. I didn't start out in infrastructure. It's only been in the past sort of five or six years that I've really been able to focus on it in my career. But it's so broad. It touches everybody. We all rely on it. Nobody is against the road that they need to go to the market or go to work. It's not about being against infrastructure. It's about understanding how we get the infrastructure services we need while maintaining intact ecosystems available and equitable benefits to all members of society and mitigate the climate change we're all experiencing. So these these are all now part of looking toward a future of new norms in infrastructure development. Sadly, one of the ways that policymakers kind of wake up and smell the coffee is when there's disasters and they lose their infrastructure because the infrastructure was built too close to a sea level rise areas or on the downside of a slope where it's been denuded of trees like we saw in California, we experienced landslides, horrific landslides that we tend to see in other parts of the world. The United States was experiencing the complex relationship between more rain, denuded landscapes because of fires, mudslides onto roads and homes. And these are all related to how we manage our relationship to the natural systems around us. Nature is super powerful, always will be. And we have tried to tamp it down forever, but we're now seeing that we can't really do that. So how do we work more harmoniously with nature to achieve what we need to thrive and allow it to thrive? It's a complex challenge, let me just say. Well, you have created this really exciting 
coalition of more than 25 organizations working on this, and Northwestern Institute for Sustainability and Energy is one of those institutions in your coalition. In a moment, we're going to hear from one of our faculty members who has been a partner with you in this work. Interested to hear your thoughts on the role of universities in this work. Why partner with a university like Northwestern? What can we do to further the cause? You know what we work on together? It's the little teeny grain of sand. It's the, re- the recognition of the role of one of the most common substances on earth, which is now scarce in the places people need it. It's driving murders and mayhem and stealing and bad behavior and demise of ecosystems all because we need sand. Now, why do we need sand? The engineers at Northwestern helped me understand that. I was giving a, a talk at, at, a, at a different university and was talking about how the head of railroads in Nepal was talking about how the fact that he in his whole career has never had to say the word biodiversity that he can recall and has never actually had a meeting with any of the environment people in that country until recently, so therefore didn't really understand the implications of where the railroad is going. Rail needs to go straight and flat. And we then worked with him and his team and eventually were able to justify moving a rail around a park instead of straight through it after several years of negotiation, a huge benefit to the country. But the issue of I never talked to nature folks was really resonant to me. And I said during the, the speech, how could the engineering school over there talk to this ecology school over here? They're in different buildings. Somehow we have to start talking together at the basic level of our education. Of course, a professor walks up to me, several did, and one of them from Northwestern said, come and speak to our engineering school. And that started a question of, so what is it that you want the engineers to do? And what do you need to understand? And it was so interesting how we'd been lamenting sand mining because of the destruction it had in the Mekong region, for example, removing sediment from the river so the flow of sediment is not landing on the the deltas, which are highly productive agricultural zones, adding in sea level rise and you get a sinking delta, which is no longer as productive as it was and quite a disaster for the region. But why are people going after sand so rapaciously? And so we started to talk to the engineers at Northwestern about what is the role sand plays? Are there alternatives to sand? What about cement? How does cement work? Why is it so carbon producing? How is the future of construction going to look if we don't have enough sand? All these really detailed questions enable us to then go back out into these policy arenas and these advocacy situations and even to the ministers that we work with more and more to talk much more clearly and, and, and precisely about what change is going to be needed and what it will take and what codes need to be shifted in order to have more sustainable products. It's that type of intensive and deep understanding of an issue that allows us to do better conservation. And we can't do all that science ourselves. So we have to work with universities, and particularly in areas that are relatively new to us, like infrastructure development. We've been extremely grateful for the relationship we've had, especially on the the intricacies of building materials related to construction of infrastructure, and and it's helped us have a stronger voice in these other arenas with this coalition, for example, and be more clear about what's needed. What are you most worried about at this time, and what makes you hopeful? 
Well, what I'm going to start with is what makes me hopeful. Even though people lament the global agreements as being ineffective or nobody pays attention, there is a major momentum at this financing level, and they have a lot of influence over decision-making. As you know, in our country, we need the private sector to be involved in the development of our infrastructure, and there are barriers right and left bringing them in. But there are incentives now, and it's getting clearer and clearer to the private sector and the investment community and the builders that they need to change their norms and deliver what society will accept as a sustainable infrastructure option to meet our needs. It's just becoming more and more possible to talk about these things with folks who have enormous influence. And the countries where we work rely on the future of private investment coming in and helping with them meeting their needs, and they're listening. So that kind of incentive leveraging, spreading of messaging throughout the systems that produce infrastructure is is looking good. I mean, it's looking hopeful. In this hugely complex sector, it's looking hopeful. What I fear is that we get bogged down, as we are observing in our own country, in the immediacy of so many of the decisions we have to make. And we start to lose sight of the implications. In infrastructure, it means so much to make the right decision. You look at the Roman roads, we're still using those Roman roads. Thousands of years later, they decided to put them here, and that's where we still have roads. Often, infrastructure is a permanent decision. There's not much we do in our lives that are permanent decisions forever, but an infrastructure development project will often be permanent. And so if we get these decisions wrong the next 10 years to push out jobs and get stuff going really quick around the world because of the recession. There's a term in the climate change world called lock-in. We're going to lock in forever climate changing model of infrastructure. We don't need that. We have options now. There's science. There's methodologies. There are ways that we can do it better while still keeping us comfortable and, and happy and fed. And we just need to get them more widely known and understood and stop the decisions from being bad as early as possible. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for joining us. And thank you for all that you are doing. Oh, great. It's great to be able to talk to you about this. Thank you so much. We just heard from Kate Newman about the World Wildlife Fund's Infrastructure and Nature Coalition. Here to talk about Northwestern University's role in this coalition is Jim Hamilton, an assistant professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the McCormick School of Engineering. His research group studies how structures and machines interact with soils and how to make moving the earth more efficient. Welcome. Jim, you don't know this, but as the daughter of someone who built earth moving equipment, I never thought that I'd meet another person who was interested in this subject. <laughs> so it's great to meet you. So tell me, you're a civil engineer. So what is that exactly for people who don't understand? And why is this what you've committed your life to? I'm actually a dyed-in-the-wool civil engineer, broadly speaking. I, you know, as, as one does, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life originally. I thought I was going to be a structural engineer. I was mesmerized as a kid with skyscrapers and thought I'd be 
designing those and uh, making sure that they didn't fall over. And I didn't c- go too far from that. I did my bachelor's degree. I was emphasized structural engineering and mechanics and more of the, that side of civil engineering. And then it was graduate school. And as it would turn out, my professional life now as a researcher that I really got interested in geomechanics. And this is the, the world underground as opposed to the world above ground, the things that we build on, or the the things that we build on the soil. And and it's a complex, interesting environment. I'm interested in, in this process of earth moving. Most recently in my work, I spend a lot of time focusing on sort of traditional failure. I'm a plastician by training, which means I focus on how materials fail. That would usually be things like, in the context of geomechanics, landslides, foundations, you know, excavations, if you uh, dig too deep or don't support things adequately while tunneling, or As Kate mentioned, if your wildfires come through and burn off vegetation and the precipitation comes, then all of that soil tends to go downhill and those create problems. But I actually flipped that later and discovered that there's this really interesting world of, well, what happens if you want to intentionally fail the soil? Meaning those are all catastrophes, but but if you're trying to get at the minerals underground or you're trying to create this opening if you're trying to move large amounts of earth for, say, a, a roadwork construction, then you actually want to fail the soil. And the, the objective there is completely turned on its head. It's about how can you optimize the process of earth moving and earth manipulation. And that has created some very natural links with the World Wildlife Fund through this global sand crisis webinar series that that they recently organized. What does all this have to do with climate change? We move so much earth and we build so much with natural materials like sands and and we'll just jump right into the sand crisis. The issue there is is that we use a lot of concrete and in building as we know it, we don't use that many materials. Traditionally, we use concrete and we use steel and we might use some timber, we might use some masonry. To make concrete, you need a lot of sand. The process of making the cement binder that goes into concrete is a very energy-intensive, carbon-intensive process. So it turns out if we could, we use a lot of sand to to go into the concrete as one of the key ingredients, and we use a lot of cement binder, which uses a lot of carbon. So this brings us to sustainability by, if we could move away from that, mining so much sand for concrete production and move to some alternative to the way that we build right now, one of the, that being one of the key ways, there are other ones, then we could save a lot of energy, we could save a lot of carbon. Your relationship with WWF, so how did that come to be? Why are you doing it? And what are you hoping to get out of it? It was a very organic connection that was made through the Institute for Sustainability and Energy. They're the organization that sort of sits above or outside of departments and brings departments together. So it's the Institute that brought WWF and I together and several of my colleagues. The collaboration with WWF was really on this issue of what's the big deal with sand? They had started to get interested in this and had these conversations as a a fascinating book written by a journalist, Vince Spicer. He was the keynote speaker for this global sand crisis series that was a joint effort between the Institute for Sustainability and Energy and the World Wildlife Fund. And I was one of the sort of co-organizers, you might say, at the beginning of that, helping to track down people that could speak to some of the issues that are there. And what is the the question? I guess we started to touch on it. I mean, why is sand so fascinating and why is it that it's so instrumental in what we build? And, you know, talks through many speakers to kind of unravel that. And maybe the short story is, uh, I can give you that, my version as a civil engineer, is that it's it's just 
just a really easy material to work with. It's flowable. You know, everybody had, you play with it as a kid, you know what it's like to be in a sandbox. You can build stuff and it's amazingly strong under the right conditions, meaning that it's got enough confinement or you've dumped in a glue like a cement binder to, to put it together, to, to hold it together. And it's got this remarkable compressive strength. And the flip side of that, which we don't really think about as civil engineers, that's the brilliance of this partnership is World Wildlife Fund is more thinking about communities, thinking about biodiversity, the ecosystems, how it impacts on, on the people, on marginalized communities in particular. And that's where it turns out this was a real recipe for disaster. All of the sand has to come from somewhere. And even in a developed country, you know, you're taking it out of the, the best sand comes from from riverbeds it doesn't come from these beaches which are the sand is too too weathered based on our current design standards for how we build with things and then if you go to other countries you know it's it's a scarce enough resource that people are actually fighting over it and people are there's a black market for sand and these surprising things so it's a it's a huge problem we need so much of it that we have to get it from somewhere where are we going to get it and that was really the theme and you already asked the question, well, well, what else? And we don't really know the answer to that other than that's going to require real systemic change in how we design and build infrastructure, really a big shift in thinking and where we put the priority. If we put the priority on profits, say, I mean, that's a lot of what drives, drives buildings at the moment and the companies that do that, or if we prioritize things like health of ecosystems and well-being of people. What's soft infrastructure? Well, a really good example that's very timely is with sea level rise, storms being such a concern year after year. The question is, do we armor ourselves by putting up concrete barriers? We know how to do that, essentially, that they, you know, erect some wall and back to this crisis with sand, erect a, erect a wall of concrete that's going to stop the waves and stop the water from infiltrating into New Orleans, for example, or Miami. That's one way to do it, but is it, is it the right way to do it? Maybe not. If you look back through history and geologic history, that is, and ecological history, it would be wetlands and plants and uh, nature has a very different way of coping with inundation and it might not even cope with it. It might just let the water come in. So uh, we're seeing a lot more interest now in wetlands as an alternative to a hard engineered barrier like a um, breakwater. and. The wetlands are, it's a, it's a really interesting place. It's not just uh, one material. It's, it's actually a living, it's an ecosystem, right? It's soil and the plants that grow on top of it. And people are kind of having those conversations around the biodiversity of the, of the plants, as well as the soil that's beneath. And how does this all couple together in a storm event where you have erosion, infiltration of water and you know, those are really exciting opportunities, but that's an example, long answer to your, what's an example of soft infrastructure would be rather than create that concrete barrier, build a wetland or, you know, facilitate the, uh, a natural barrier that's going to actually perform better than a hard barrier. So final question, I always ask everyone, what worries you the most at this moment and what are you most hopeful about? You know, what worries me more than, more than anything is that it's just so out of control, this kind of problem, realizing the impact that human beings are having is it just was kind of a model for growth that we were on. And, you know, that's, that's been our relationship with carbon is just consume, consume, conserve, consume and burn. You know, we weren't, we weren't really concerned with it at all. So we really are in truly a crisis. I mean, it's hard 
it's hard to internalize the level of, of that crisis. And the good thing is that we are having conversations about changing it. I, I think growth models are being questioned. <laughs> are we, should we always be on a growth trajectory or should we be selectively slowing down? The flip side of that is what am I hopeful about? We are aware of the magnitude of this problem. We are having conversations in my sector, in the AEC sector, architecture, engineering, and construction. For example, carbon is a real discussion point now. <laughs> it's happened. And, uh, you know, that adage about that which gets measured gets managed. It's wonderful to see that now we're having these conversations about carbon footprint. And it's not just the design and construction of buildings. It's the use of buildings. And it's, it's kind of pervasive. Your work is such a powerful example of the contributions that universities can and must make to addressing this challenge. Really, without universities, we won't have those new alternatives to sand. So we just really appreciate all that you do. And thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Annalise. For more information on this episode and on the Northwestern Buffett Institute for Global Affairs, visit us at buffett.northwestern.edu. 